hope that you'll continue with your baseball development. I'll try my best. And uh, thank you very much for, for being such a great guest. And I managed to not swear for so long as well. It's brilliant. No, you swore loads. You swore, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you dropped some big ones. You dropped some big ones. Gosh. And the worst bit is, though, I, I don't know how I'm going to edit these out, so I'm going to have to put the explicit tag on these. Yes, yeah, exactly. um, you not see me giving the, the tea when you you can't you can't edit me out. I, I am what I am. That's what it is. <laughs> Un, unfiltered and uncut. Right? Yeah, definitely. You're listening to the British Baseball Podcast. Um, for a swing, <laughs> yeah. So we, we are here to talk about the glorious uh, big taste that is John Baxnell. John, pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? I'm very good, Matt. How are you? Yeah, very well. And uh, as always, I'm joined by your complice of Ian Bleese. Bleese dog, what's happening? Hello, mate. You okay? Yeah, not bad. Uh, this could go anyway. Really, you two seem to be enjoying a, a nice uh, cold beverage, and I've got myself a pint of chocolate milkshake because um, I am not rock and roll on Friday. So uh, let's let's have some fun. Uh, John, do you want to start us off at the beginning and let us know um, how you got interested in, in the great sport of baseball? Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to say quickly that if the UK government are listening, it is the 17th of May and we're having a very legal indoor beer. <laughs> right, so this won't be going out this Monday then. I'll have to delay the... Uh... <laughs> right, um, how did I get involved in baseball? Well, um, so... Back in the mid 80s, uh, some of my family went to New York. Uh, one of my cousins brought me back a New York Mets t-shirt. Um, I didn't really have any idea what it was at the time. And then obviously I found out that the Mets won the World Series in 86. Um, always tried to follow baseball sort of like in the papers and obviously pre-internet days. So it was quite hard following it and stuff like that. Um, fast forward a good 15, 16 years. Um, I was living in Brighton. I was working part-time uh, doing door security, uh, security events, stuff like that. And I happened to go to an event or be working at an event uh, in Brighton Marina where they were launching something called the Walk of Fame, um, which was a, almost like a, a Hollywood stars kind of thing with uh, inscribed bricks being built into Brighton Marina. Uh, with various local celebrities, sports stars, things like that. And the Brighton Buccaneers had a brick being adorned into this, this walkway. And I met a chap called Andy Clark and his son, Charlie, who happened to turn up in full Bucks uniform, which was uh, kind of weird because it was a bit of a black tie event. But um, yeah, they, they came in and I had a chat with them. Um, and then the following winter... I actually phoned Craig Savage because I got his, his details off the internet, off the Bucks web page. Um, spoke to him probably for about half an hour, probably bored the arse off him talking about, you know, how I played cricket so much and all this kind of thing. So I reckon I could probably turn to baseball. Um, looking back on it, he probably just sat there and thought, oh my God, who is this that's coming? Because uh, I went to the first few winter training sessions um, and yeah, I realised that it, it was a lot more difficult than it looked on TV. And I definitely wasn't as good as I thought I would be. Um, but yeah, I stuck with it. 
uh, went through winter training and started playing for the Bucks second team. Um, being managed by Kevin Gogan at the time. Um, got to meet loads of really good guys. Uh, had no real kind of comprehension of the fact that I was I was kind of amongst baseball royalty in Great Britain at the time. Uh, very young Will Linton, his brother George, previous guests, you know, Alex Malahoudis, uh, Nick Carter, John Carter. The, the list just goes on and on of great baseball players, Mark Mills, Ben Gogan, all these other people. I had no idea who they were or how good they were. And obviously looking back now, um, yeah, these guys were, were these were, they were the stuff at the end of the day. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting start to baseball. It really was. What are some of my favorite memories on playing with the Brighton team? Um, <clears throat> hard to say. I mean, there were so many, uh, I mean, we, we were fortunate enough to have not only a very good first team, but the second team pretty good as well. Um, we more than held our own. Uh, and yeah, again, a lot of good guys in those teams uh, traveling all over. I think it was probably the best team I could have hoped for to be starting out in baseball with. Who did you learn the most from about your time down there? Oh, I think it's got to go to Savage. I mean, it was about the time that I know Craig spoke about uh, when he went over to San Diego and worked with Tony Gwynn and he came back with all these drills and all these things. And it was even some of the more experienced players were like, wow, this is, this is a bit new. Um, but just watching the other players, um, particularly guys like Alex Malahoudis, you know, it, it, everything just came so naturally to him. It was, it was nuts. You know, we had a night where we were going to do bunt drills and Craig said, right, I want you to do slash bunts. Uh, Alex hit a slash bunt over the left field fence. Quite, um, whether it was on purpose or by accident, it was still pretty impressive to watch. Um, we had a Canadian pitcher come over, um, and he actually lived with me for the, the time that he was here. He was living for me, working, doing some labouring for me, a guy called John Chadwick, and he played double A for the Blue Jays. Um, and... To this day, I still don't see, think I've seen anybody throw the ball harder than he did. He was a kind of big six foot four, 240 guy with a real hard slider. Um, I caught for him a couple of times and you could hear the ball coming towards you. That was that was how much it moved in the air. It was brilliant. Um, yeah, so many, so many good players in that team. It's, it's really hard to pick just one person that could possibly have influenced me so much. That's cool. So where did you end up going after Brighton? So um, I bounced around a few places, really, because uh, obviously when Brighton kind of um, almost kind of folded uh, around 2007, 2008, um, stopped playing as much. I'd also interspersed that with a, a stint living up north. So I was living in Rochdale um, and that was when I first started playing for Bolton, uh, came across um, I was living in Rochdale, got in touch with Matt Norburn and I said, look, I want to come over and do some, do some training with you guys and hopefully play. Uh, they were still quite a new team, you know, only two, three years old at the time. Um, and from what I recall from some of the other guys, Matt kind of bigged me up a bit before I turned up for the first training session saying, oh yeah, this guy's, he's playing for Brighton, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I turned up for the first training session and where the field was, 
Um, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a minefield to negotiate getting there, and I had to climb over this little bank. And as I was walking down the bank, I slipped and fell over, and basically rolled to the bottom of it with the entire squad looking over, supposedly seeing this this great baseball player from the south. Um, yeah, very unceremoniously on his ass with his bag on top of him. Uh, I took a split decision, split second decision then to say, right, do I get up and just go home again or do I go over and meet these guys? Um, I made the sensible decision. I got up and I went over and I met them. And yeah, it's a decision I've never looked back on in my life. Brilliant. And you started off there getting, um, <coughs> was it in the youth setup with the Robux? Yeah, so, started out. yeah, so 2007, um, before I moved back to Brighton again, uh, I was involved, again, Matt Norburn, uh, myself, uh, Lee Heaton. We set up the, the kids' programme, um, mainly through a few of the players had younger brothers and sisters that have been coming to the games and stuff like that, and they wanted to play. So we started doing some kids' stuff. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't see it through because, we, met, like I say, we moved back to Brighton mid-2007. Um, and yeah, it was um, it, it kind of it, it kind of grew legs, but unfortunately, with um, with youth baseball, you've got to have people around all the time to to help it help it run. It it didn't quite get to where we wanted it to, although uh, the youth program did continue a little bit longer, and it did produce some some quite useful players. Um, one of them is one of your previous guests, Matt Moran. Matt came over to us. Uh, another, another young lad, Tom Ball, he came out of Bolton. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was a nice start, but it didn't quite pan out. Yeah, what, what are your memories of towards the end of, of the Robots of Doom? Yeah, so, I mean, sort of the... From about 2009 to 2013 is probably some of the best baseball memories I have, some of the most fun times. Um, Bolton were quite often seen as a little bit of a joke team, especially when we launched the Robots of Doom name. Um, it drew some ridicule, it drew some curiosity. Um, we even had one player actually quit the club because he said he didn't he didn't want to be associated with it, um, which is fair enough. You know, everyone had their opinion. Um, but that team was that was a kind of special team. I go back through it, um, and some of the players that we had there individually, we probably weren't the greatest, but as a team, the team spirit and the way we held each other up. And the way we drove each other on, it was a it was a great team. And then obviously, 2011 came along, and we went we went through our season uh, pretty. I think we only lost two games all season, and we won our way through to the Double A finals down at Hemel Hempstead. And no one gave us a hope because we were playing the the Latin boys, who'd won their division. Uh, without losing a game the whole season and we were never behind in the final we did have a it did go to extra innings um, 
because the first baseman, who I've got to stand up and say it was me, actually had a Bill Buckner moment and what should have been the final out came to me and I misplayed it at first and we didn't get the out. Um, so the run scored, we went back in and came back out again after a bit of a speech and put four more runs back on the board and the rest was history, that was it. And we were we were double A champions. And I think that's possibly the greatest baseball memory I will I'll always carry with me. It was a it was a very special time, a really good team, but just such a great bunch of guys. A lot of them I'm still really good friends with now. Um, and we are trying to plan a 10 year reunion this year. So September time, uh, I think it's actually September the 11th. Um, so we'll have to be a bit careful with how we celebrate. But um, yeah, we're gonna try and put something together for that. I can uh, jump in on there and sort of go that I, I was, I happened to be there for that because it was the same day um, that the Trojans won their first AAA uh, national title uh, down there. And we'd won our game uh, on uh, earlier in the day and we'd, we'd been crowned champions. A few, of us had, a few of us had gone back to the hotel, got changed, got back on the beers, um, and we found ourselves completely absorbed into watching the Bolton versus Latin boys game. Um, we had a player at the time called Richard Ramos, who was known as Sergio. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, he plays for Cartmel now, so a good player. Um, and the, you know we were chanting Sergio. Um, there was it was high drama. John's mentioned one error. He's not mentioned another one. Um, uh, it wasn't by him. It was by another player where there was a a, a throw from the outfield that went past the, that, that went over the catcher and a, and, a, and a run came in and scored. So Bolton had two chances to win it, um, and both of them both of them seemed to have been lost on errors. So to have the resolve to come back and win it overall, it was it was a fantastic uh, day. Bolton had a player at the time that I had grown up playing with. So when I started playing when I was 14, I started playing with a young chap called Jamie Sherlock. And I mean, Jamie probably won't listen to this and I would say it to his face if he was here, but Jamie Sherlock is probably the the, the Ravel Morrison of, of British baseball. He could have had it all. He could have been such a fantastic player and he made a few uh, different choices in in life and didn't potentially fulfill his potential um he he left the game when he was about 18 or 19 and didn't come back until his um mid to late 20s i think um and um he was playing in that game and i think i believe he came in and, and pitched right towards the end of that game did he get did he get the save at the end or the win at the end yeah yeah he came so um, I, <laughs> that was the thing with that day. Uh, Rico Toniolo, uh, he was the manager at the time. And we all turned up at Hemel and he just said to me, he says, you're, um, you're starting on the bench. I was like, what? He said, you, you're starting on the bench. Uh, I'm going to start Jamie at first. I was like, uh, okay. So, you know, took it kind of well, but inside I was, I was quite disappointed. Um, <clears throat> went off. A little wander around and then just like, no, nope, I'm going to be there. I'm, I'm in it with the team. Um, and he actually brought me in. Uh, I think it was like the fifth or the sixth inning. He brought me in to pinch hit. And I hit a two-run double, um, which gave us a nice cushion on the lead that we had. 
Um, and Jamie, I came in at first and Jamie took over pitching. And I mean, it, it was like, like Ian said, Jamie made some life choices and he was, he was nuts, but he was such an exceptional ball player. Um, he, he had in, he taken on board a substantial amount of Bacardi on the drive down from Bolton that morning. Um, I think we're 10 years from there. So I don't think it's, we're, we're really going to see any payback from that now. Um, but yeah, but he came up and he pitched and he pitched a great close out of the game. Um, and Rico always said to me afterwards, he said, I deliberately didn't start you because I knew it would wind you up so that when I needed you, you'd be so wound up, you'd come out and you'd just be trying to prove a point. And he got his strategy right. He really did. Um, and yeah, and I, I'll never forget the final out. It was Jamie was pitching still and the catcher, I can't remember, I think it was Chris Clifton. I'm not 100% sure. Um, it, was a, it was almost a wild pitch, maybe a pass ball, but it went behind and it came back off the backstop and the Latin boys runner who, who was at third tried to score and it came back so fast that I knew that Chris just had to take the ball and he turned around and he made the out and I was three quarters of the way up the first baseline to home plate with my hands in the air before the umpire made the call because I knew it was out and that was it and that was the game and it was and it, there was just this dog pile everyone went nuts it was it was just amazing it was such a fantastic day it was brilliant so cool uh, and you said that's one of your favourite baseball games but surely the big baseball stories is you two. How did, how did you two become friends and how did you meet? And So we, we I mean, we, we played against each other and knew of each other for a, for a long time. Um, but I suppose the, uh, we became good friends um, not long before the first uh, books tour. Um, so, uh, you know, you've had John Carter on the show as well. And I know you've spoken to him about, about his books travel team. Uh, but yeah, it was John who brought the, trip to to my attention uh, you know me and a few of the trojans uh, dave martin byers and uh, paul smith came as well uh, and and jay Bax let us know about it and was like you know you guys would be great you know we're playing over 35s if you want to come along and I, I, you know i know carter really well i'll put in a good word for you uh, and we all saw it as this once in a lifetime opportunity um to because it's it's not a not, not the cheapest thing in the world to do but once we had a once we had a, a taste of that of that trip, we we didn't have a choice. We were going to have to we were going to have to go and do it again, uh, and potentially again. Well, we've done it twice so far, and we're hoping to to, to go again uh, in October. And should the situation with uh, with COVID allow, but really it was during that trip uh, and the stories that we have from that first trip that 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 we became. Uh, good mates and um, probably some stories I, I, I can't tell on, on, on this but um, but yeah it was such such a great feeling of camaraderie and such a great feeling of um, just such a great collective experience that we had on that trip that it was impossible not to stay friends afterwards and not long after that trip uh, John made the decision to come and join the Trojans um, and uh, yeah, we've just we've just kind of been in touch, uh, been close ever since. 
So I know he made, he made the comment before about it being um, about it being May seventeenth, um, but I, I do actually live on my own and I am allowed a support bubble, so, and, and, it, and it has been and it has been John uh, and, and his family uh, throughout throughout this time. So uh, so I'm I'm entirely grateful for uh, <laughs> for that. Plus all the snacks that his wife Heather brings, she's lots and lots of snacks. I'm surprised you've not brought food in while we're on this call, to be honest. But yeah, I think, you know, as well, you know, we're, we're both Bolt Wanderers fans. Um, obviously, Ian doesn't live in Bolton anymore, but I've just moved. Well, I say I've just moved. Six years ago, I've just moved back to Bolton. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and like he says, we we played against each other on occasion when Liverpool played Bolton. Not not as much, because obviously, um, as the leagues kind of changed, they were in different divisions and things like that. But, um, but yeah, it was when we came back from Arizona, um, the first time and things weren't really going as well as we'd hoped it would with with Bolton's move to Holton and I, I kind of I'd fallen out with baseball um, it became more of a chore than something that I was enjoying uh, it was getting to the point where I didn't really want to be playing two games every Sunday I was quite happy to be there and help manage the team but it was literally getting to the stage where I was having to play every game because we only had nine players. And it's like, this is, there was no signs of development. There was no signs of getting extra people in and stuff like that. And uh, I think it kind of coincided um, with me just saying, you know what, I'm quite happy to go to Liverpool. Even if I don't play as much, I just, I like being involved at a higher standard of baseball. Um, it's no discredit to the guys at Bolton or the guys that were left with what they were doing. Um, but it just wasn't something I was enjoying. And if you're not enjoying it, why are you doing it at the end of the day? Very true. Was it then the Liverpool Trojans that made you fall back in love with baseball or was it something else? I think going to Arizona made me fall back in love with baseball. I mean, it, I wouldn't say I, I fell out in love with baseball. I was having a hard time um, with it. And it was, I think it comes to, to a lot of us as well as you start to get older as well. Um, I wasn't playing as well as I had done. Um, I was getting injured more often and basically everything in my game was slowing down and, and it wasn't that quick to begin with. So, yeah, going, going to Arizona and just being there and experiencing what we did, um, it, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I couldn't recommend it highly enough to anybody if they wanted to get involved and go and do it and I'm sure everybody that's been on the Bucks tour will tell you exactly the same um, I do regret to this day that I didn't go on the Field of Dreams tour uh, but it just wasn't possible for me with family commitments um, <coughs> financial commitments because none of these tours are cheap um, but yeah going to Arizona and then coming back and, and being involved with the Trojans um, yeah, I, I, I started to enjoy my baseball more. I think to jump on the back of that, if I can, Matt, just for a second. So I'm I'm a couple of years younger than John, and I'm probably approaching a similar stage uh, of, of my career as, as he was at the time. And you have games where you play really well, and and playing is everything that you that you want to do all the time. Um, and you, but then you also have more games than you used to have when you were younger, where it doesn't go so well. And then to be asked to go out there and do it again. Um, it can be a little bit demoralising. It's, it's sometimes hard to keep the 
you know how to keep the motivation up uh, i mean i'm 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 working really hard to try and try and defy the years and keep playing as long as possible um but but yeah i mean i i knew i saw john play when he was sort of 30 31 32 um, and then I saw John play when he was 42 and he, he's sitting right next to me. I know he won't mind me saying that they weren't the same player. You know, the, 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 you know the, the, he could still go after the first pitch fastball with no doubt in my mind. But, uh, but defensively, it, 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 hadn't, it hadn't, hadn't stayed the same. And I think I'm going the same way now as I approach at the similar age to what, to what he was at the time. So we'll just, we'll just see how long, uh, how long we can keep going. Um, I'm just getting bored. That's pretty interesting. I'm getting old and worn out, man. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had to start wearing glasses. That was one of the problems. I, I I hadn't really figured out the fact that I couldn't see the ball anymore, and that was why I wasn't hitting it. Um, so he's becoming umpire instead. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> but then I, you know, I've got my glasses and and everything's good. But uh, I have a problem with distance vision, so I've got distance vision glasses, which is great until the ball gets to about two feet in front of me. Um, when you're trying to time it with a bat. Seeing it from behind the plate, that's a, that's a completely different game. Um, so, but I, I've had knee surgery this year, and yeah, it's, it's time. You know, I, I was at the physio this morning getting discharged, and he said, "Anything else wrong?" And I said, "Yeah, my shoulder hurts." And he's like, "Yeah, it's probably from twenty years of throwing a baseball." And I'm like, "Yeah, you're probably right." Um, so yeah, I think I think I've taken the right decision now in, in stepping back from trying to play. Um, because I think I'd disappoint myself if I can't play to a level where I, that I think is acceptable. Um, I'm just gonna, it's just gonna frustrate me, and I, I won't enjoy it anymore. So was that then the, the deciding factor in becoming an umpire? Did you just want to stay involved in the game? Um, it was a big part of it. I mean, I, I did my, I did my first umpires course in 2014 um, with Darren Muller and Petter Nordberg. And it, it didn't sink in at the time, but one of the things they said was, and they said, they always say this to players, is that you can't become an umpire until you're ready to finish playing. And I think at the time I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I can just kind of fit it in both. And as it happened, I couldn't. I still wanted to keep playing. Um, so umpiring took a kind of a back seat. And then <laughs> I, I kind of made the decision last year was going to be my last year anyway. And then obviously COVID struck and it, it really made it the last year. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've still got, I still had all my umpire kit and I was like, you know what? I want to, um, I want to take this to another level. I want to, I really want to get into it. Um, so I started reading up again. I got in touch with Gabor and he's, really pointed me in all the right directions, helped me along the way. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to umpiring for many, many years, if, if I can do. Um, but yeah, I want, I, baseball's one of those games that once you've been involved, it's very hard not to be. Um, and I think that over the, the 20 years that I've been with baseball, Baseball's really given me a lot. I've got friends all over the world. I've played on, you know, three, hang on, I'm going to do a Conor Baker lay for me. I've played on two different continents. Um, I've, I've played on amazing fields. I've played on 
absolutely bobbins fields that you wouldn't think you could play baseball on. I've got I've got some wonderful friends that I've had 15 years, some longer, and hopefully we'll all stay friends. Um, one of the things that really made me think about being an umpire or staying with umpiring was when we did Battle of Britain in September and sharing a couple of beers with Gavin, Gavin Marshall. And he said, baseball in Britain keeps going because there are people that are willing to go out and help baseball for the simple reason that baseball has given them so much. And to me, I think, well, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't I want to keep doing umpiring? Why wouldn't I want to do, I'm, I, I've got to be honest, I'm not a coach. I've no tolerance for children. I've very little tolerance for my own children, never mind other people's. So coaching kids was, was never really going to be my way of doing things. Um, so umpiring made a lot of sense to me. Um, obviously, as a former catcher, I'm familiar to the position. Um, and it's, it's a great way of just being involved. It really is. So with umpires, is it right to say there's a bit of a shortage of them in this country? Absolutely. Yeah. Sell, sell, sell it to sell it to people then people that are thinking of of hanging up the cleats and maybe want to stay in the game and pitch it to us why 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 should why should umpiring be the way forward when you feel like you're coming towards the end of your career i don't think it's it's a, it's so much as saying it should be the way forward because it's it's not for everybody um it is quite high pressure you've got to be pretty thick-skinned um you need to be able to think quite quickly, although not, not everyone always demonstrates that or it, as that may be perceived by people. Um, but yeah, there is unquestionably a shortage of umpires in this country. Um, and it needs, we need to address it. And, and the thing is, there are people that are addressing it. Um, I've already spoken about Gabor. He's doing an amazing job of um, working on training plans. There's a program in progress with uh, the WBSC uh, following their training regime. Um, the opportunities that are out there for people that want to be umpires, um, there's loads, you know, you can, you don't have to come in and go right oh, I want to be the best I can you just say I'm you know I'll be quite happy to come and club umpire and if that's the case um there's plenty of people within British baseball particularly umpires that are offering their their experiences the mentorship to get people to come in and go yeah you know I can come and help a club out um particularly ex-players ex-players don't necessarily make best umpires because you'd be amazed how many players don't actually know the rules um but a really good understanding of the game <laughs> it does make it a hell of a lot easier it really does but what it needs is the clubs to get people to come forward a lot of people don't want to come forward because they're like oh i don't understand enough i'm not experienced enough that doesn't matter we can teach you how to be experienced enough we can teach you how to understand it what we've got to get over is the first hurdle of getting people to volunteer to do it 
you don't even have to volunteer because you'll get paid to do it. You should get paid. Um, if you're umpiring for your club, you're entitled to saying, well, you know, I want to take some money for this. And clubs need to get on board with the fact that if they're going to have umpires, they need to pay for them. Um, you know, the top level umpires, we all get paid for our games, as we should do. Um, so, but it's just getting people to take that first step and get involved. Um, and there might be guys out there that aren't the best players. They could be fantastic umpires. No one knows until they come and give it a go. Um, and like we say, there are resources there for people to utilise to come and learn how to do it. And who knows, you know, the sky's the limit. There are a couple of um, European umpires that have now gone over. They're doing minor league baseball. You know, professional umpires doing minor league baseball, working their way up the ladder to become major league umpires. So people talk about diversity in the game. It's not just restricted to the players, it's, it's everybody. You know, if you want to do it, put your hand up, make sure somebody knows you've got your hand up and come and find us, we'll help you. I think for me to follow up what John's just been saying there about umpiring, if you've got a genuine passion and love for the game, the easiest way um, easiest way, uh, the most accessible way for you to uh, make a mark uh, as a professional of any kind is through is through umpiring. Um, it's, it's it's good money to start with. If you're a qualified umpire, depending on which league you're in, um, then you usually get paid uh, thirty pounds and upwards. If you're an unqualified umpire, then usually it's twenty five pounds and upwards, and that's per game. So double header, you double it. Um, there's there's opportunities to train and you can quite quickly progress to do seed tournaments uh, to do uh, to do all kinds of things and so plenty of plenty of pretty average players have gone on to become exceptional uh, umpires uh, some people who've who've never played and I think I heard you speak to Thomas Haywood uh, when you first started out quite a while ago um, and Thomas trained a few times with the team up in uh, in Scotland and quite quickly realised he, he wasn't going to make it as a player but loved the sport. And he's one of the more qualified umpires in this country and he umpires tournaments uh, certainly all over Europe and I think he's probably been to America a few times too. Thomas Thomas has umpired in China. Yeah. that's I mean, Thomas's network stretches across the globe. It's, it's insane. Um but yeah, he's been an umpire in China. He's umpired all over Europe. He's a very, very highly respected umpire all across Europe. Um, but I mean, just going back to like we were saying about how how we develop. Um, so obviously, I've I've done BBF courses. I've got quite a lot of experience. But even now, I've gone out and literally um, done some games working with Gab or done some games working with Petter. And these guys will help you constantly. So they've, they've watched what I've been doing, given me a couple of pointers, and I've made adjustments in-game. And all of a sudden, I found, wow, that's, that's really made a big difference to how I feel calling a game. And uh, even just like the physicality of it, uh, you know, you're going to do four, 500 squats during the course of a game. That's quite a lot, really, if you think about it. You know, there's a lot of pressure on your legs. So Gavel gave me some really good pointers about not coming down into the into the slot too early. 
um, making sure you keep moving. And yeah, I've done that, made a big difference to how my legs feel after a game, stuff like that. So we're not even saying to people that if you want to come and do it, you've got to come and attend clinics. You haven't got to do stuff like that. There's people out there that will be able to provide advice, give pointers on what you're doing, how you can improve slightly, and, and just go from there. So now we're getting on to one of the, the my favourite parts of the show and the guest's least favourite part of the show, which is the listener questions. Uh, you mentioned it before, uh, Matt Moran has asked the question, what are some of your favourite moments from playing in the Zootomir Birds tournament over the years? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I've got a lot of time for Matt. Um, I remember when he came to us first, um, as this really, really keen kid. Um, I was actually surprised that how physically big his head is. It's huge. Um, he, he, had, he, was, he was given the nickname Swede <laughs> when he was at Bolton. Um, hopefully he'll appreciate me saying that. Uh, but yeah, Matt came on a couple of tours. So we the, we went the first year we went to Zutamir, uh, which is a small town just outside the Hague in Holland. Uh, we went in 2009, um, and this place is incredible. It, the population of the town is about 40,000 people, and they have a full-size baseball field. They have two full-size softball fields, both under floodlight, and a full dirt infield, a little bit of an outfield for warm-ups. <clears throat> full clubhouse, bar facilities, cooking, everything. Five changing rooms and an umpire's changing room as well in this tiny little town. Um, we went out there not knowing what to expect. Uh, we were camping at the site and it was just, again, as I've said before, I've got friends all over the world from baseball and a lot of them I've met in at the Birds tournament. It was just fantastic. It was three days of um, just playing ball, having a great laugh. Friday is usually pretty serious. Saturday, bearing in mind how much people drank Friday night, would be slightly less serious. And Sunday was people just going from team to team saying, has anyone got any spare players? Because people were just banged up, hung over. Um, they used to have... You know, they always used to get on like a live band on the Saturday night. They did this big communal barbecue where everybody got all the food and you went out and you had to cook your own meat and stuff like that. So you'd be standing there chatting with people from other teams, other countries. So we met players from Germany, France, Belgium. Uh, I think there might have been a Spanish team there one year. Um, yeah, just, I mean, we, we went there literally every year for like five, six years. Um, and it's just, it's just such a lovely place. The people were so friendly. Uh, the club's run as a community club. So everybody that's involved with the club has to volunteer to do one weekend a year um, actually helping out on the facilities. So you'd find a lot like the baseball mums would be doing, um, running the bar or doing the cooking and stuff like that. <coughs> uh, a lot of the like renovation work, the field work was all done by volunteers. Um, and they had, they had teams literally from like T-ball, four or five-year-old T-ball, um, right the way up through. And this is baseball and softball, all the way up through to seniors. 
and they were uh, a Dutch third division side. They bounced around between third and second division, so sort of third and fourth tier Dutch baseball. Um, and yeah, we had, we just had so much fun on those. I mean, we had uh, when when Jockey Wilson was getting married, we had his stag do there. Um, I seem to recall we tied him to a flagpole naked, um, which which was bemusing to a lot of our. Uh, European brethren, but it, it may have been bemusing, but it didn't stop them all joining the conga line where everybody smacked his ass as we went past. Um, we had we led communal singing, um, myself and probably my, one of my best baseball friends, Tony Berry. Um, everyone knows him as Yogi. Um, just leading communal singing with all these, all these French, Germans, Dutch baseball players and their wives and the girlfriends, the families, everything. Um, you know, I took, I, I've been out there. I had, I had my wife, Heather, and our two girls with us and camping. And it was literally like we were just able to let the girls run free. They were charging around. Um, all the, the Dutch baseball mums were taking care of them and stuff like this. Just such a fantastic place. The, the whole, the whole thing of it was, it was just amazing. Um, I can't think of, of, of one favourite memory, um, but yeah, just so many good memories. It's, it's, it's such a great place. That was a lot of talking for no answer, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was really cool. Though. <laughs> um, I, I'll try and come up with something. I remember the first year we went, we all decided to grow big handlebar moustaches because um, we thought it would be interesting. And then when we got there, the they had some guy... I've got a funny feeling he might have been the mayor from Zutomir and he was like opening the tournament and he decided he was going to do this kind of comedy skit thing where he he like he put on a beret and started talking with this weird French accent um, to introduce the French team and then to introduce us he put on a bowler hat and then just like completely out the blue he put on this like proper german hun helmet with the spike on the top to introduce the germans and we were all looking at each other like whoa what, what is happening here this is this is running pretty close to the edge um but again yeah everybody took it as the joke it was um we had a, bit, a fair bit of banter between us and the germans um as to be expected but you know it all it all worked out well on the field um yeah, just just surreal, funny moments the whole time. Lovely. Uh, Carter, one word, Dublin. Yeah, so that was um, that was how I, re I really got back in touch with Carter actually. Um, so two thousand and eight, Bolton um, went over to Ireland to play in the Dublin tournament. Uh, so it was against the Irish national team, uh, most of whom landed for the first time in Ireland in their lives from America that weekend. Um, the, I'm going to say the London Metros, because um, I think it was the Metros team at the time, including Josh Chetwin, Liam Carroll, um, a few other players we knew were there. And then there was the original inception of Ray Brownlee's Northern Knights, so Ray Brownlee was the, the, the head coach 
David Chris was there as a coach as well. And then a lot of the, well, again, all the, the best Northern players. So Martin Godsell was there. Uh, a few other players I can't really remember. Ray went on to become a very successful professional umpire in North America as well. Yes, he did. Ray is now, well, Ray has been a professional umpire in, in Canada. Uh, or I say professional, he gets paid for it. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, and so we went to this tournament in Dublin. Uh, we were vastly outskilled by almost everybody. But yeah, so I said to I said to Matt Norburn, I said, look, I, I know this guy in Brighton. He'll probably be up for it. He likes he likes the tour. So I said to John, do you fancy it? And right, like, yeah, yeah. So we went, and it was great. Uh, and then the Saturday night, we went out into Dublin. Um, and I think me and Carter got in about six in the morning um, in probably not the best shape for playing baseball. Our game was about three and a half hours later. John was pitching. I was meant to be catching. I, I got down to catch his first warm-up pitch. Never even saw it. It went flying past my head. And I just stood up and said, no, nope, I'm not playing and walked off. Um, John, fair credit to him, he actually went on and pitched about three or four really good innings. Um, the funny thing was, we were playing the Northern Knights and they'd been under a strict curfew. But they weren't meant to be going out and drinking and stuff like that. Now, I know Goddy managed to sneak out and get a couple of beers because he told me that uh, in the years to come. But by some freakish miracle, we were actually leading after about three innings. And I remember Ray pulling the whole squad off the bench and getting them on a knee and literally shouting at them, telling them off. And every so often you could hear these drunken bastards and all this sort of stuff because he knew we'd all been out on the beer that night and yet they were losing to this team. Of course, the Knights turned it around, came back, won the game. But um, yeah, so yeah, Dublin. John did some unspeakable things. I'm not going to mention him because it's just going to embarrass him. That's fair enough, and he can get the right to apply, so we'll save him his graces there. There you go, John. I hope that was satisfactory for you. Uh, Neil Davies uh, has asked a, a good one, and I'm going to take my time with this, so I'll get it right. If a ball caught in the outfield is thrown to an infielder who relays the ball to home, sending it out of bounds off the catcher while attempting to retire the third runner, I think it is, who oh. tagged up, but runner one has passed the second base at the time of the catch and retreats the first base without touching the second base. Where do you award? Congratulations on, on the dead ball. Yeah. <laughs> Can I veto that one? That's one you really need, you need to, to put. Well, obviously you don't really you don't show these online. So, um, so obviously. A couple of weeks ago, when we had the, the Northern Knights Legends games, there was a similar play to this. I think that's what Neil was attributing to. Um, long story short, the runner ends up at third, uh, but would be called out on appeal uh, because he failed to retouch second base on his way back to first. Um, and that was the answer that I gave Neil. That has actually been ratified by Eddie Fallon as well. So um, we're right. And um, we'll, we'll just stick with that. Um, Neil needs to get some more hobbies. <laughs> Dale uh, Hagen has asked if you could relive one moment and one season in baseball what would they be and why um, yeah 
Dad, I think I've already answered that. Obviously, Dale, I've known Dale a long time. Um, I first met Dale in Holland, actually, um, when he was, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna offend him here. I think he was maybe 15 at the time. And he came over um, with the, the, with the robots team. It was a year that I hadn't been playing up north. Um, so it might have been 2012, I think, was the first time I met him. Um, and he, yeah, he was a really good ball player. Um, but they, I'd been warned. They said, oh, yeah, Dale, really nice kid, but he doesn't shut up. So I was like, all right, okay. Then coming home, it was like, oh, um, all the cars are quite full because we drove. Um, strangely, the guys from Bolton drove down to uh, Folkestone and got the Channel Tunnel and then drove back up through France, Belgium and into Holland. Um, in the years to come, we used to go from Hull straight over. But they'd done that and there was, and I was living in Brighton. So they said, oh, you're going back to Folkestone, aren't you? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, well, can you take Dale in your car just till we get across the Channel? And then we'll put him back in ours. It just gives us all a little bit more space. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay. And then a couple of the others like going, oh, he won't shut up. And I was like, so we literally, the morning we were leaving, Dale got in the car. I said, right, don't say anything. I said, I've got to concentrate on driving. If you speak, I will leave you on the side of the road in Belgium. Um, so he didn't say anything virtually the whole way. Now, fast forward eight, nine years, um i'm really really good friends with dale he he stuck stuck it out at bolton um in a really big way he he was part of the 2011 team uh he stayed with it a long time he he, he kind of dropped out of baseball the same kind of time i did he, he felt the same um he same thing as usual so he, he got involved with a girl and everything goes wrong when that happens doesn't it so um yeah he's he's not really he's, he's he's not in baseball anymore i saw his brother kobe um at the knights game a couple of weeks ago now again kobe really talented young player he came over to holland with us the last time we went um and i said to him how's your brother i've not seen him for ages because he, he was living in manchester but he moved back up to the lakes um with uh with his his now fiance jenna and I, he said yeah yeah he says He's turned into a right since he stopped playing baseball. He said he's massive, so I need to find him and see him because I want to. I want to ratify this on myself. Um, but yeah, no, Dale, Dale is is a really great guy, um, and yeah, I think absolutely. If I could play one moment out again, it would definitely be that 2011 final. Um, that good fellow, and you're right. Has asked two questions as well. Do you want to ask him, Ian or Shy? Did he ask two questions? All he right. did. Okay. Um, so I can remember one of them, and one of them was uh, the serious one. So I'll save that one for, for next. So here's one I've just thought of. What's your go-to karaoke song? Well, it's Elton John. I guess that's why they call it the blues, but that's not a secret to anyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've had a we had, we had a we had a night out in a in a karaoke bar. This is though this is about 10% of no, probably five percent of the story of that evening. Um we had a night out in a karaoke bar in Arizona. Um and I'd never heard I didn't know John could sing. He claimed he could sing, but he claims he can do a lot of things. And um, he, he he got called up to to sing this song, and the whole room the whole room was just was just fixated as he uh, as, as he belted out this uh, 
80s, 80s, 90s, 80s, 80s, 80s ballad by Elton John. And um, yeah, it was, it, did you sing it to, was it, was it uh, Hindu that was in? Yes, yes. Yeah, there was a Hindu that was in and John just sang at the, uh, at the, at the hen, um, which was, which, which was hilarious. Um, it, it was, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you had to be there. I found it hilarious, but um, it was, it was brilliant because she just got more and more uncomfortable as the song went on and therefore John fed off that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was great. Uh, they didn't stay for much longer. Um, weird. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, and the, 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 the next question is a more serious baseball question. Uh, I've play, I spent most of my uh, career playing baseball uh, behind the now British Baseball Hall of Famer Martin Godsall, and few people uh, had more success against him than the guest on today's show, John Baxendale. And I wonder what what was your secret? How did you get so many hits off one of the best hitters in uh, one of the best pitchers uh, that, that the game's seen in this country? Um, I basically went with the attitude that I was always going to see a first pitch fastball because whenever I'd seen Goddy play, that always seemed to be his go-to. The mistake I made was telling my colleague here, Mr. Blees, because the following season, I didn't get thrown a first pitch fastball, uh, which I was quite disappointed about. Um, I think I did actually get one hit off him that day, but that was about it. But he'd obviously let my secret slip. And um, yeah, and um, yeah, but yeah, that was it. I, I just there was no there was no easy way to face Scotty. You went up and you were like, you've just got to swing. You you have to swing because he was he was too consistent. He would throw a strike, whether you wanted him to or not. He was going to throw a strike. So I kind of went with the attitude. Well, I'll swing the bat at the first one I see. If I get on it, fantastic, because chances are you won't see another one. I actually remember the, the hit that John's talking about. Um, and there's quite a famous clip where I think it was Vladimir Guerrero throws the bat at, uh, at a pitch that's fooled him. And it wasn't quite as extreme as that, um, but it was... It wasn't it, far it, off. It was, well, it was, it, it was actually, you know, in terms of... It, ordinarily, you'd expect it to foul the pitch off because um, it was quite a, one of those quite late swings at a, a, a slider breaking to the inside half of the plate. Uh, and he just, just managed to get the barrel on there and it, and it went up over my head um and i'm and i'm running back on it and i know i i, I just i'm giving it everything that i've got and i know that i've not got to play on this on, on this at all and it, and it and it drops in and uh jay a friend of mine is just stood on first base smiling at me so <laughs> in, in all honesty a taller or less fat second baseman would have caught it i was i was playing first base <laughs> <I'm stands. laughs> Brilliant. Um... Chris Gary has asked, apart from me, who's your favourite player? And James Rand sort of nominated himself for that answer. But do you have a favourite player? Chris Gary would be one of my favourite players, but he's never done anything to actually <laughs> earn that title as player. So, no, not Chris. Um, James Moran. Yeah, James is a great guy. Um, he was uh, he was on the last Arizona tour. I'd never really met him that much. Um, but he's not my favourite player. Um <laughs> Well, that's that's a tricky one. I mean, favourite player on a, a friendship basis, I've got Blaze here, Tony Berry, who I've mentioned before. Um, 
few other people like that uh, on ability basis. Well, I mean, Gavin Marshall, Gavin is just pure entertainment when he plays. He really is. It's uh, his pitching. His pitching is, is brilliant as it always has been, but his, his approach to the game is so different. So um, when I was calling the, the Knights game a couple of weeks ago, Gavin's still one of the only players that will ask if he fouls a pitch off, he'll ask whether it's a pitch or a strike, which is weird because you'd expect that out of more people. Um, and yeah, it, you know, he, he struck out looking and he tried to sell it so well in that he started to make his charge down to first base, but immediately peeled off knowing that I was going to call him. <laughs> um, Favourite player to watch play? I'm going to go all fangirl and I'm just going to say Malahoudis. He was just... Alex, not only was he one of the, the, the most talented players I've seen, it just seemed to come so easily. But what always struck me the most, and I, I, I put this in a comment after his interview with you, is that he just, he always played the game with this biggest smile on his face. He was just the nicest guy. He was so approachable. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to say for, on, a, on an ability basis, it's, it's, it's Alex or Gav. They're just, they're just out there. On a, they're on a different level. They really were. What about Major League? Major League? Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's Bart Day, isn't it? Bartolo Cologne. It's four years since he hit his home run. Five years. That would never happen. Um, yeah, I, I just the, any major leaguer. I just love watching major leaguers play. Just the the way they make the things look so so simple. That also draws the comparisons to Chris Gary as well. Yeah, the fact that we we regularly we, you know Chris has Chris has been known as as, as Bartolo for for a long time. Um, I, I think possibly largely before Bartolo's freak home run. Uh, Chris Chris did hit one one home run. Which and, happens to be a grand slam, and he's never shut up about uh, it since. Which, which he only mentions at least I'd, I'd, on the hour, every hour. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But um. But yeah. Uh, you know that, that's probably a, a good comparison with with Chris and Bartolo there. I know they're not about Chris. Like literally every time I speak to Chris, we talk about Red Dwarf. That's what we talk <laughs> about all the time. Is he talking about himself when he's sunburned? <laughs> no comment. Um, Liam J. Hamilton, how is his huge collection of toolboxes and how are they looking these days? Yeah, my, my toolboxes are actually looking pretty nice at the moment. I, I, a lot of people may have seen last year, I, I built myself a nice little workshop and with some help. Yeah, well, yeah, I had some, had some support from Blaze there, technical management, something like that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's still a work in progress. I now have a little uh, umpire gear corner where I've built some some racking and some some hanging rails for my umpire kit. So um, to put it in the in the words of my wife, get that shit out of my garage. Um, so I have done. Uh, yeah, it's coming along. I, I'm I'm not really using the toolboxes so much anymore because I don't go anywhere with my tools. It's all based at home. So, but um, Hamo is always welcome to come around and have a look if he wants to inspect my toolbox. There you go. Uh, uh, Neil sort of asked something we touched on before. I don't know if there's anything more can add to this, but he also asked, what do you think can and or should be done to increase the number and standard of umpiring in this country? I just want to say as well that Bernard Di Lorenzo has uh, followed up as well, saying that um, him being part of the ABUAGB for years, uh, he talks about the clinics and um, some of the stuff there too. So is there anything else you want to add to what BJ put into 
what we've already touched on. Yeah, I mean, BJ's a really, really experienced old umpire from, from this neck of the woods. Um, so what he said, yeah, it's a lot of it is is clinics, training. Um, but we kind of pinned it down to, to three things. is one, clubs getting behind people, putting them forward for it. Two is access to training, mentoring, um, help for people. And the third one, and I've got to say, this is probably one of the biggest ones, is people treating the umpires with respect. It sounds a little bit, um, a little bit cliched, but everybody's very quick to point out the mistakes the umpires make. That how many people are really that would be that keen to step up and take their shoes? You know, we're not professionals. We're only human. We will make mistakes. We're out there doing it because we want to. You know, if we're not there doing it, no one else is. And you haven't really got a game without us. So they'd be the three things that I've really pushed towards it. On advice for young pitchers as well. If you're not getting your calls, don't stand there shaking your head at the umpire and winding yourself up. One, it's not going to change the call. And two, you're just making yourself more wound up and you're going to throw worse. In your advice, thank you very much. Uh, so now we're down to the last three questions. We're in the bottom of the seventh, and uh, the answers are either going to be strikes or you're going to get hits, and so you can load the bases. So, John, do you have any hidden talents? Probably the singing, surely. Yeah, it's probably, probably, the probably the singing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, done, I've, I've got to be honest, I don't know if I have any talents, really. No. Uh, I mean, he, he does. Uh, it's just that he, he doesn't, you know, he does them professionally. So, uh, so in terms of, um, you know, he he knocks up he knocks up this uh, workshop uh, virtually on his own um, in in no time. You know, I say in no time, but in his spare time, he did the majority of the building in a week while the other time off work. And for someone for someone like me, I could never do that on my own. Uh, and um, you know, I made a comment that I came to help before. I did virtually nothing. I held things while John nailed them in, basically. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it, it, but so that that's that's a talent. And 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 like I said before, the singing was uh, was something I didn't I didn't see coming. So he definitely does. Cool, I'm cool. a pretty good cook as well, which is no surprise to anybody that's seen me. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you most afraid of? Um, Shady. that's a tricky one actually um, yeah I think I'm most afraid if I've worked a lot of people that know me know I work away from home a lot of the time most of most of my last 14 years of working i've sacrificed a lot of time away from my family um i'd hate for that to not result in something good um i've got two beautiful girls i put the first one through private school the second one's going through it now the, and, and i'm not i'm not saying that boast in any kind of way um we've had to sacrifice a lot of things for me to do it it was my choice whether people agree with it or not 
that's fine. Um, I really hope that the opportunities that I've created for them, they can take full advantage of and go on and have wonderfully successful lives. Um, but most of all, just happy lives. I think that would be, that, that would be my biggest fear that if my, my children weren't happy in their grown up lives. I don't care about them, if they're miserable yeah. now, it's their fault. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah, I, I, I feel you on that one. Uh, last one, do you have any guilty pleasures? I'm a New York Mets and Bolton Wanderers fan, so you can <laughs> take from that what you want to. Um, <laughs> Full BDSM dungeon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have ridiculous musical tastes. I literally listen to everything. If 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 I like the sound of it, I listen to it, and that's that. I can't I can't change that. I go back. To, I mean, I don't have a CD collection anymore because it's all in boxes in the loft. Um, some of the younger listeners would be like, "What's a CD?" Um, but yeah, I'd say music is probably my biggest guilty pleasure and eclectic, weird, just odd music. Whenever we're in Arizona, it's always uh, John's usually, uh, you know, got a car and I spend a lot of time uh, driving, you know, riding to different uh, towns and, and different games and things like that. And it's usually while we're there, he's always in a very country mood. Um, when in Rome. <laughs> uh, and we, um, and I've, I've, you know, there, there are some lyrics in country music that you just wouldn't see, you, you don't see coming. And I, I genuinely, my jaw drops and I just start laughing. Um, you know, it's, it, some very interesting stuff, and he's a big, big fan. That's, uh, that's an interesting one. You can have that one. So with these bases now being loaded, it's time to walk them off. Uh, John, thanks again for being such a great guest. Uh, Belisi, as always, pleasure to have you on um, to give some support. Um, John, you got any parting words, any advice, or any shout-outs you want to give? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I've, baseball's given me 20 years of just mainly brilliant memories. Um, I've met some wonderful people. I've helped out some <laughs> just all sorts of different people. It, and it, it it gives me great pride to be able to see some of the younger players that um, I've been involved with, that not only are they achieving in their baseball lives, but some of them that have completely stepped away from baseball have gone on to achieve really good things in their personal lives. Um, and I'd, I'd, I hope to be able to say, yeah, I, I contributed slightly to that, you know. Um, and I think that's a big thing is that these teams, managers, coaches, you've got these young guys or young players, sorry, young guys and girls um, under your, your tutelage. And they're, they're looking at you for for guidance so to be able to sort of say yeah go on and just be good be good in baseball be good in life just do everything um to see them achieve is actually really really nice um and it's it i've got i say lots of friends still um you gotta put a big shout out to the baseball mums mums and dads um i see some of these people and i have seen them driving their kids all over the country week in week out um, just so the kids can go and play baseball. And, and they're fantastic. Um, <clears throat> off the top of my head, 
Alan and Jackie Morant, Matt's parents, uh, Simon and Julie Ball, Tom Ball's parents, uh, Doreen Entwistle, Anita, Dale's mum, Dale and Kobe's mum, uh, Kevin and Lisa, Miles' parents, just these people that just... Helen and Kevin. Yeah. Connor. Helen and Kevin, Latham, Connor. And you just see, they, they're just giving up their lives just to take the kids all over the country every week. Um, and it's just amazing to see them do it and all power to them. And I, I really hope that people recognise what goes into this and, and how much they give up just to be able to do it. Um, so for me, I have to, I have to put out mad props to my wife, um, my wife, Heather. I think she thought that when I stopped playing, that was going to be it. But now I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm off, I'm off umpiring this weekend. Oh, okay. And she'll have a little grump, but then she'll be like, well, what buses do you want me to make you and stuff like that? And, um, yeah, I think everybody just needs to really appreciate the resources that they have behind them. No mind the resources they're taking advantage of when they're playing. Um, so yeah, just like they say, baseball is just a massive family. It really is. And yeah, family don't always get on, but we've all got the same goal at heart at the end of the day. So yeah, just big each other up. Love everybody in baseball. Love all my baseball friends. Um, yeah, just fantastic. And yeah, I really appreciate having the time to come on and, and talk to you, Matt. Uh, John, thanks again ever so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, all the best in the future, and I'll see you soon. Nice one. Thanks a lot, Matt. Cheers, mate. Ta-ra.